Welcome to the teaching ministry at Carthus Creek Community Church. Plastic or real, true or untrue, authentic or fake, a deeply rooted faith or slowly coming undone, grounded in God and his word or grounded in you in a long lost experience you think about not very often. This video pierces us for it brings home in such a powerful and succinct way the reality between those who walk with God and even struggle with them and those that appear to walk with God but don't. Now, at the heart of our faith is one thing, and one thing only. It is real relationship with the living God, which is grounded in and held up by another thing, something that the world, of course, is always desperate to see in authenticity. It's called faithfulness. Really, the best uh, way to describe uh, dealing with wisdom and dealing with God and moving from what we just saw to reality is actually the act of marriage. At the heart of marriage is something we call a vow. It's an oath. It's not a contract. This week, Joe and I celebrated 11 years of marriage. All right, that's good. And on this very stage, 11 years ago at this very spot, this is the vow that I made not only to Joanna and in front of some of you, but to God himself. Here are the words I said so long ago. I offer myself completely to you, Joanna, to be your husband in marriage. I promise to love you with all of my heart and to be true to be faithful, patient, kind, unselfish in this love. I promise to stand beside you always in times of joy, in times of trial, in times of sorrow. I dedicate our marriage and our home to the lordship of Jesus Christ. I pledge myself and all that I am to you in love. If you're married or have been married, maybe you had a more traditional vow like this. I take you to have and hold from this day forward. For better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. But the truth is that much of our culture, if we're honest, do not believe in vows anymore at all, but we believe in contracts. And so what we actually say now and what we mean are two very different things. And the results in our marriage, the results in our relationships, and the result, even more scary, in our faith, like we've just seen in this video, is drastically broken. Brett Allman, who was doing his date talk uh, with our young adult community a few weeks ago, graphically painted a different but very honest picture when he presented these so-called secular vows. Maybe you've heard them. I, Rick, take you, Monica, to be my cohabitant, to have sex with you and hold you responsible for half the bills, to love and take advantage of you from this day forward or as long as our arrangement works out. If I should break up with you, it doesn't mean you weren't special to me because I love you almost as much as I love myself. I commit to love you and live with you for a while, so help me, me, in the name of sex, in the name of options, in the name of selfishness. Amen. I mean, that's pretty true, I think. I mean, I think that's why we end up not only in marriages, but actually we end up in faith like the video. Both vows, good and bad, bring home how we deal with this whole topic of Proverbs and the call to fear the living God. Either we truly embrace him and we marry wisdom or we don't. Now, I hope you've come to hear from the living God today because he is about to speak. Many of us today will be challenged, either here or online, to say yes for the first time, to really meet the living God. Others of you will be proposed to by God himself, but you will say yes to another. 
Others will renew their vow after a long time of still saying yes to God. And some of us that are living like, they've, like we said yes, though we act like we said no, need to now turn back to the living God and not live like you're divorced or separated from wisdom or God any longer. You do not need to be that person in that video. God, this day, if you want him, is going to call you back. Plastic or real, relationship or exile, authentic or fake, powerless or powerful, this is where we choose to end our summer series in Proverbs. See, God at this moment wants to talk into our meaninglessness, into our lost dreams, into guilt, into struggle, into the barely surviving and the non-existent faith, in those who are doing well and those who are wondering if it's real anymore, into whatever your reality is. And once again, our God, who is a good dad, is not only going to show us the way home, he's going to show us the way out, he's going to show us the way itself. Now for eight weeks I've shared that to understand Proverbs... We need to get one fact right, and it's this. Proverbs are not promises from God. If you've been taught that in churches you've grown up with, they're sincere but wrong. Proverbs are promptings for godly living. The first nine chapters, as we've said week after week, is a conversation between a really good dad and his young adult son, and we've got to listen in on it. Imagine now, though, as we come to the end, mom and dad are getting ready to send off their son into the world. All sorts of parents are about to send children off to college right now, this week. And so for one last time, they sit down this young adult son to urge him, to remind him, to lovingly call him out. But the question is, what will happen? It is yet to be seen if this son will embrace the great gift of wisdom he has been given And so we all are now in the place of the young adult son. And the questions that are about to be posed to him this morning are about to be posed to all of us from heaven itself. And so the son and we enter into the land that many of us hate to linger in. The place between invitation and decision. The place where resolution, whether good or bad, will come, but has not come yet. Now last week we heard firsthand who wisdom was and is. Her actions, her love, her very DNA was given in her great autobiography found in chapter 8. She is self-sufficient. She is industrious, wealthy. She actually really loves others. She wants to help. She's selfless. She is perfect. And after such a majestic speech here now, we are given the final appeal to study her and know her. We've all been called to attention. We've all been charged. We've all been given motivation. But now there is decision. But the decision will not be made in a time of peace, but in a time of war. The call is now given in the middle of a showdown between two women, two kings, two worldviews, two powers, two different worlds. The battle is about to be graphically illustrated in the antithesis between an unfaithful, adulterous woman and woman wisdom. This is the climax of the whole book. Now, the question to the young adult son is, will he side with wisdom or will he side with folly? Will he love God or will he love Satan? God's path or the self-constructed path, which only leads back to yourself and death. Our story begins here in Proverbs 9.1. If you've got your Bible, open it, or if you've got it online, turn to it there. Proverbs 9.1, hear the word of God. Wisdom has built her house. She has set up its seven pillars. Wisdom has built, has created, has brought into existence with the great creative power she owns, her home, interestingly marked by seven pillars. This is a large and grand stately structure. Her perfect house has plenty of room to entertain everyone. And don't forget that seven 
Seven is God's number. It means perfection and completeness. This is an indication of wisdom's power, wealth, social status. Wisdom is complete and needs nothing at all. And in that house, verse 2, she has prepared her meat and mixed her wine, and she has also set her table. This is a huge feast, a sumptuous banquet with meat and wine at the center. Unlike us or our daily experience in North America, meat in that day was a luxury, rare, expensive, not normally eaten by the common person. And yet here, this rare gift is what's going to be given out freely, liberally, and openly to all that would want it. And with this meat, there is drink. There is mixed wine. Like I said before, my Baptist upbringing didn't get this right. There is good wine at this place. They added honey, herbs, spices. This is not diluted wine at all. This is strong, expensive wine. Wisdom is calling to all who will listen to enjoy this fine, luxurious banquet. It's on her. It's free. She's actually set the table for us. As another observed, just as food and drink give us physical life, Solomon's teachings give us spiritual life, and yet this truth of Proverbs 9 finds its full climax and culmination somewhere else. If you know your New Testament, Jesus uses the idea of a kingdom banquet where the kingdom of God is presented as a banquet, and we're all invited to know him. Now, this invitation, notice, isn't done in secret by woman wisdom. This is not some evite to a small group of close friends. This is a mass email. This is Twitter, Facebook, a letter sent out. It's billboards, TV ads, word of mouth. Wisdom is everywhere using everything to try to talk to all of us. Verse 3, she has sent out her servants. She calls from the highest point of the city. Her servants in this case are the wisdom teachers and the parents. But notice where wisdom calls and cries out from. She cries only from one place, the highest point in the city. Now, this fact is so significant theologically. Wisdom is crying out actually from the temple of God, the center and pinnacle of the city, from the highest point, for where wisdom is found, so God is always present. God, where he is worshipped, where he is connected with, there wisdom resides also. The pinnacle of Jerusalem was always the temple. But there's more. As one author wrote very, very insightfully, then we need to ask who wisdom really is. The author says we can't ignore that the house is built on the highest point because in Near Eastern culture, the only house built at that point is, of course, the temple. And then they write this. So it is not a stretch, therefore, to suggest that wisdom is not just the personification of Yahweh's wisdom, God's wisdom, but also of God himself. Wisdom is God. And so with that understanding, God comes to his community, says, let all who are simple come to my house. You who are gullible, doesn't matter how old you are, you who are gullible or senseless or immature to those that have not committed to either side of this great war that has potmarked all of our history, to those who have not chosen the radical polarity, you that have not hardened your heart yet, you that have not become mocker or fool, wisdom says to all, to those who have no sense, come and eat my food and drink my wine that I have mixed. Come, wisdom says, there is an urgency. Literally in Hebrew it means turn in here. Now again, this is no sermon, this is no speech. That, my friends, has been given for eight chapters. This is nothing less than mercy and grace expressed in hospitality, in a public invitation to come to her table and to really, ready, get to know her, 
But again, do not miss the strong sexual overtones in Proverbs. Because when we choose not to go there, we miss the power of what it's saying. See, in near ancient Eastern culture, when a woman invited a man to dinner, it was to actually get to know him, to know him. God intentionally uses the idea of sex because he wants to drive home the point that you can know a lot about wisdom, you can quote wisdom, you can be all around wisdom, but if you are not within her and she is not within you, if she is not part of you, then you do not know her. Walking with God in his ways is not religion, it is not ideals, it is not dead doctrine, it is relationship, it is not just knowing about him, it is actually experiencing him. This is a good place to say amen. This is the heart of what God is crying out. Leave your simple ways and you will live, God says. Walk in the way of insight. Leave, she says. Humble yourself. Notice that God is holding all the potential guests responsible to turn aside from the deadened path of foolishness and telling them to walk in the way of wisdom alone. There is now a choice given. Who will you eat with, Crothers Creek? Who will you sleep with, metaphorically? Who will you love? If you turn aside from your old life and your old friends and your old ways, not only will life be given, eternal life will be given. Well, after that grand speech, suddenly there's a lull in Proverbs 9. It's like we move into no man's land. We are called to stop, to evaluate, to really take time to decide what to do with woman wisdom. And this is done by actually looking at a pro and con list as seen through the life of others that have already chosen each side. See, we can look around and see wisdom and foolishness for what they both are, life-giving or life-killing, bondage or freedom. Really, this is an argument from experience, and God is trying to show all of us today, Christian or not, that woman wisdom, not woman folly, is where we should end up. Hear these words, because some of you will recognize yourself in them. Whoever corrects a mocker invites insults. Whoever rebukes the wicked incurs abuse. Do not rebuke a mocker or they will hate you. Rebuke the wise, they will love you. The danger of instructing foolish foolish people and the glory of giving wisdom to those in an ever-growing wisdom place is seen in response. Those that are mockers and fools will always take godly wisdom as a personal attack and will lash out against you. Mocking, of course, at its heart is about God and others. You will know if you're growing more and more, not in your age, but in wisdom, if you begin to actually love when you are corrected from a godly safe source. You will know even at this moment what path you are on by just being honest of how you react when God or those that God gives you to represent him speak into your life. Another pastor wrote, as is taught in so many places in the book of Proverbs, the ability to hear and respond in an honest way to godly criticism is crucial to personal growth. Why? Because if we do not put ourselves in a posture of humility, then we will perpetually end up doing the same sins again and again. And then, of course, we lose faith and we turn on the church and we turn on leaders and others and say, what did you all do for me? And God says, but... You didn't listen. Instruct the wise and they will be wiser still. Teach the righteous and they will add to their learning. No one has reached the grand plateau of wisdom. As one so amazingly wrote, the one who teaches learns twice. 
Those that love God and his wisdom are always looking to learn, to change, to move, to become more like Jesus. The old churchy statement is so true. God loves you for exactly who you are, but loves you too much to leave you as you are. The wise never retire in faith because they know it is grounded in a relationship with God, the God of the universe who is so vast and deep and beautiful, we could never, ever plumb his depths in a lifetime, yet alone eternity. That is why the next verse exposes the heart and frames the whole beautiful grand picture called Proverbs this way. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One, that is understanding. The fear of the Lord... What does that mean again? We've talked about this this whole series. It means worship. It means faithfulness to God. It's all about God and our relationship with him. Real knowledge equals real life change. Fear is, yes, about respect. It is about grand awe. It is about love, and it even is about small t terror. One fears a superior power because God is God and we are not. But I think we could boil down the whole idea of fearing God to this one statement written by another. Wisdom's call, listen please, wisdom's call is not an invitation to some school of manners. God doesn't just want us to be nicer Canadians. God does not call us to moral self-improvement. Church is not about just being good people. Rather, it is an invitation to know the Holy One Himself. When you hear the phrase, fear of God, it is an ancient Hebrew way of saying to actually have relationship with Him. For through wisdom your days will be many, verse 11. Your years will be added to your life. If you are wise, your wisdom will reward you. If you're a mocker, you'll suffer alone. If you love wisdom, you will have love. You'll have purpose, you will not be alone, for the author of wisdom promises never to leave or forsake any of us. But if you reject wisdom, you will be alone. And if all of us are honest here today, if there is one thing that terrifies the human experience and soul at its core, it's this, it's loneliness. Loneliness is a curse on any house, trust me, we all know this, but invited loneliness is the ugliest form of solitude. Mocking drives God and others away. Not one of us in this room, not one of you listening or watching online, wherever you are, at a co- on a go train or cottage or in another country, not one of us has to be alone. For God, if we love him and walk with him, and we do not become mockers, cherishes our presence and we cherish his. Well, the grand speech of wisdom is given The honest evaluation of uh, of foolishness and wisdom worked out in our lives is talked about. But then suddenly, like a dark movie, a much more sinister character comes forward, moves us as the reader and hearer into a dark place, the dark side, a place where light actually becomes absent. Unlike God's wisdom, which builds up a house, who actually gives blessing, who actually is preparing a banquet, who sends out servants to call, to connect, to meet us. Think about it, where we are all at. Another woman now enters the scene. She's evil incarnate. She's the adulterous woman, the nemesis of wisdom, personified as a whore who pompously sits on an elevated throne at the opening of her house. The rival now comes out of the shadows and dark alleys of chapter 7. She is no longer clandestine. She now moves from trying to seduce one young man to all of us. Make no mistake, at this moment, 
there is a decision trying to be made for you. She has arrived to now have her showdown with woman wisdom. She is her rival, not only out to seduce the young adult community or a young adult son, but everyone. God's word describes her bluntly this way. Folly is an unruly woman. She is simple and she knows nothing. Unlike wisdom that is God-centered and hardworking and generous, folly is loud and boisterous, undisciplined, has no time for God, no time for worship, no time for love or faithfulness. She is the grand prophetess that cries out to our culture and to me and to you that you are more important than God and you are more important than family and you're more important than others. It's all about you and you and you for the moment. She sits at the door of her house on a seat at the highest point of the city, calling out to all those who pass by to go straight on their way, who go straight on their way. There's great power, by the way, I learned this week, when you don't just read past that little phrase, on a seat. See, this is the seat of honor. In the Old Testament, this is used 129 times to actually refer to one thing, a royal throne. This woman has authority. This woman has power. She has wealth. One historian reflecting on this said these words, Chairs were so rare that only the noblest people owned one. In Elizabethan times, chairs were a luxury. Common people sat on stools or benches. The gentry even used cushions on the floor. Even the grandest ballrooms of the day only had one chair. Only the nobleman sat on it. When a teacher was raised to the position of professor, he was presented with an actual chair as a symbol now of his elevated status in the world. The Proverbs, the chair is symbolized by this this throne, the seat of honor. Sitting on this posture, she takes authority. I mean, we see this in Scripture all the time. The scribes and Pharisees say to Jesus, they sat on on the seat of Moses. Jesus, when he taught, sat down much of the time to speak. When the Pope and the Roman Catholic movement speaks ex cathedra, it means from the chair. Faithful Roman Catholics then bow to authority. And yet here, this pretentious imposter now presents herself as a so-called empress who rules a city, and the gullible bow to her authority. From the beginning of times, fools have met her carnal house. Some scholars rightly see, in my opinion, an allusion to a hill in the shape of an acropolis where there are not only the temple of God, but pagan temples where the sacred prostitutes were located. Another wrote, if, if wisdom is Yahweh, then who, we must ask, is folly? Who also has a high point place? She too, they write, represents deity. This is important. But she does not stand for the living God of heaven and earth. No, no. Folly represents all the pagan gods and goddesses who desire to lure Israel away from the true God. She stands for Marduk and Baal and Ishtar and At and Asherah and Chemosh and Moloch. And of course, we of course as Christians now know that all those fake idols were just fake, but the spiritual forces behind them are real and we now know his name clearly. His name is Satan. Two women, two voices, Two paths, two worldviews, two spiritual forces, not equal in strength, but very real. If wisdom comes from God, from his temple, then folly comes from the high places. She is the voice of the fallen angel himself, Satan, who calls all of us, even as Christians, to embrace him, to love the world as it is, and also to cherish our own sin. And make no mistake, her crude invitation is sufficient to kill many. Listen 
to woman follies challenge to us. Let all who are simple come to my house. The invitation is repeated verbatim, that of wisdom. She cries out something different, though. What I offer is better. Can you hear it? It's all the way back to Genesis. It's more exciting than God. More exciting than the wisdom that emanates from his DNA. She says, turn in here. Make me your hotel. Come home. Come and live with me. I will give you what you desire. I will give you what you've been made to have. You can be like God. You must feel and know good and evil. God doesn't want to give you what you deserve. But I promise, I promise you'll get what you want. And I'll give it to you now. To those that have no sense, she says, stolen water is sweet. Food eaten in secret is delicious. Many translations, food is just bread. Notice the contrast of the meals. No meat or wine, just bread and water. My anniversary was on Thursday, as I shared, and and, uh, Joe and I um, were invited to a banquet. My future sister-in-law who's currently sitting with my wife in the hospital. No baby let, okay. No, really. She went into labor in the parking lot, so okay. Um, You can pray later. Let me finish. My sister-in-law, who's a nurse, who's there, that's why she's there, and my future brother-in-law, Matt, invited us to a banquet. They're getting married in December, and, and we got the privilege to go and try all the options of food for their wedding. Twelve courses. It's really six, but we tried everything. It was good. I'm publicly confessing the sin of gluttony now. Now what you need to understand, why I was so struck by this when I was writing, I just had this unbelievable banquet. Banquets are rare. And it would be like being offered that, and then someone else saying, but John... Mickey D's, let's go. And you're like, are you serious? Oh, the nuggets, mmm, the nuggets. And you're like, but really, actually over here we have chili and sea, but no, no, you don't understand, the milkshake, come on. Now we laugh, because it absolutely is absurd. I mean, as one wrote, wisdom offers a future, a call to maturity, word and life. Folly offers immediate pleasure, which of course is outside of the intended boundaries of God, and it brings death. The old Arabic proverb, everything forbidden is sweet, is true. Bread and water is nothing compared to an amazing feast that wisdom offers. The whore's offer is ridiculous, laughable, deceptive, and cheap. We all know it, yet we buy in. Notice she doesn't even own her own food. You have to steal it to get it. Words and advertising images for a time can cover up rotting graves, but in the end, this woman leads to death, but wisdom gives life. And again, not to harp on this, but we must let Scripture speak for what it is. Do not miss the power of these images. This image of water rushes us back to chapter 5 and 6 and 7. They are highly erotic images. Water is the famous metaphor in Proverbs and Song of Solomon for the sexual experience we call orgasm. The goal here by wisdom wisdom and folly is to show some deep contrast here. And the second call is all about sex and image and power and rush and desire. It is about instant gratification. And yet the story does not conclude with an airbrushed ending. 
but with a hard, sharp, cold, chosen reality called the dead end. Little do they know that the dead are actually there in the house, that our guests are in the deep realm of the dead. You want a modern vernacular? She will drag you down to hell. There's no middle road. You notice that? There is only two paths in wisdom. Uh, Wisdom that is known and good and folly, which is strange, foreign, and evil. Both call out to us. Both want us. Both want a decision. And we, the reader, the hearer, all of us, like the young adult son, must ask the question of ourselves. Who will we dine with? Who will we have intimate relationship with? Who will we, as one person wrote, actually make an integral part of our life? Or simply put, who will we make a vow because these two women don't play with contracts. Let's think about this as a community. I want to ask the many of you that, who join us weekly here or online that are, are not Christians yet. You, you probably are a genuine seeker. You, you have not met the God that wrote the book of Proverbs. You have not yet feared God. You have not met him through Jesus Christ. The question asked to you this morning is, who will you marry? God has decided to speak to you this day, whether you are expecting it or not. He has now and has already shown you life and death, what is permanent and what is fading quicker than you think. You see, these two houses or these two kings come to their fullest expression later in Jesus' teaching on what you build your house on. If you've grown up in church, I want you now to hear Matthew 7 in relationship to Proverbs 9. And if you're a seeker, this is written for you, so listen closely. If you're checking out, come back. This is when application happens. Jesus said, therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who puts it, builds his house on the rock. The rain comes down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because its foundations were on the rock. But everyone who hears the words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. The rains come down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. I mean, we can relate to this image as we're watching Irene wreak havoc right up the coast. What is being said to you as a seeker this morning is this. Embrace the path of wisdom. You need wisdom. And to really embrace wisdom, well, you need to embrace the author of wisdom. That means to fear God. But to really do that, you need to meet God. And the only way to meet God is is only one path. is to personally put your faith or your trust in Jesus because he actually is God in flesh. He is the rock where we find salvation, forgiveness, hope, and relationship with the living God. If you call on Jesus today, who lived a perfect Proverbs life, Jesus did everything in the book of Proverbs and never missed a beat. He lived a perfect life. He died in our place. He was risen again and has dealt with sin and folly. He has overcome all the things that we have done with water and other things in secret or in public. He has overcome Satan and death. If you call on him today, if you repent, if you do a 180, if you ask him to be Savior and Lord of your life, then you will eat at the table prepared by God for you. You will know him. Wisdom will be given to you. Eternal life will be given to you. And you will begin a new journey away from death into life. That is why Jesus' best friend penned the most famous love words on earth. This is how much God loved the world. He gave his son and his only one son. And this is why that no one needs 
to be destroyed. By believing in Jesus, anyone can have a whole and lasting life. God didn't go to all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger and tell the world how bad it was. He came to help us, to put the world right again. Anyone who trusts in him is acquitted. But anyone who refuses to trust in him has long since been under a death sentence without even knowing it. And why? Because of that person's failure to believe in the one-of-a-kind Son of God when introduced to them. The story of woman wisdom and woman folly find their greatest climax in the death and resurrection of Jesus. For he has been sent to get us when we could not get to him. The question being posed to some of you this morning is, will you continue to act like you know God or think about God or stalk God or will you actually meet him, get on your knees and humble yourself and say, I'm done, I need you for real. God speaks to our smaller group among us today too, though. God says to some of you that are Christians, you need to stop running because you actually have said yes. Please listen. Wisdom, one wrote, offers correction or even rebuke. Readers may not find this aspect of instruction appealing. Many actually may be asking, John, what type of feast is this? You invite me for a good dinner, and then you tell me it's going to be a lecture on good behavior served with the great dessert called, you'll thank me later someday for this. Hearing this, we can understand why so many don't love wisdom. Why? Because wisdom demands that we grow. Wisdom demands that we change our direction, where interestingly, folly demands nothing of you at all. We'll accept your life. You that are acting like you did not say yes to Jesus and take the wedding vow, but you know you have, God clearly shows you at this moment, and he does this in such passionate love that there is a meal better than where you're eating. There is hope and life. God says through one of his servants this morning, come back, come back, come back, repent. Stop running and sleeping around with folly. Say yes to the vow you've already made with Jesus. Like the prodigal son, the father is always looking, is always waiting, is always ready to run and put his arms around you and put the ring back on and say, I'm so glad you're home. There is nothing, hear this, there is nothing that you could have done when you were hanging out with that strange woman that I didn't die for. There's no sin too big, so awful, so gross, so vile. I said it was finished. And he says, come home. Come home. God says to you, stop running. Take the wedding ring that you have on your counter and put it back on and say, yes, I do love God by his mercy. Proverbs 9 challenges many to meet God for the first time. Challenges a smaller group to stop acting like you're divorced. Because I have news for you. You're not big enough to kick my boss out of your life. But here's the last thing. The fear of God is given to all of us, we who love God and struggle and wrestle with him, so we get to renew our vows again to him. One wrote, do we need wisdom's correction about the fear of God as well? Perhaps we do. Because it's easy to become jaded and, dare I say, bored with our knowledge of God as Christians, either because it's partial or it's inaccurate, or here's the real one among many of us at C4, because our fear of God is distant and detached. I once heard a comedian, this person writes, talking about taking his kids to the zoo. When they came home, the mother asked, well, what animals did you see? And they answered this, well, we saw a lion. It wasn't very exciting, that voice. 
The comedian then joked that he wanted to take his kids back to the zoo. He wanted to throw them back into the cage, not just outside of the cage, let the lion chase them around for a while, let them run and scream in terror, and at the last minute, pull them out and then say to them, now children, you've actually seen a lion. Now, of course, the father would never do such a thing, 911, what's your emergency? But the scenario points out the difference between detached knowledge and knowing something up close and personal. When I read that statement this week, it struck me. I was taken back to one of my favorite books, C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Aslan, who's the great lion, right, who represents Jesus in the story, is introduced by this conversation. You probably know it. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan, I thought he would be a man. Is he quite safe? I should feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That, will, that you will, dearie. Make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can bef- uh, appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either just brave or just down, downright silly. Well, well, then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver is telling you? Who said anything about safe? Of course Aslan isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. God comes to some of us today and asks you the blunt, loving question. Why do you live in such a detached state from me? So many of us sitting here know about God. We know his word, but our experience with him is severely lacking. I'm shocked how many times when I've begun to have personal conversation in the last year and I've asked this community to pray dangerous prayers in their own Christian walk. God, do anything you need to do in my life for your glory, my freedom, so the world gets to see Jesus clearly. And how many of you in honest moments have said, oh, I'm not praying that. My challenge to you today, whether you want it or not, is this. Do you want Proverbs 9 for real? Then ask God to throw you in the lion's den with him and really meet him. We don't need detached Christians. We need Christians who know the fear of God, both intellectually and experientially, who the word of God is deeply grounded in us and we walk with him, that we are willing to do anything he asks. We're even willing to be near him. Is he safe? No, God is never safe, but he's good. To fear God means to embrace wisdom. To embrace wisdom means to experience God. To experience God means to actually have your life radically realtered because he is bringing a new kingdom that is making us a new people so the world can tell the difference between the whore and woman wisdom. That is what the living God is asking. So if you would dare, and I mean this not as a challenge, I mean this as a shepherd If you would dare get in the posture today, no matter who you are, no matter how old you are, no matter where you've been on the journey, to respond in one way or more, then ask the living God to bring us to the place of wisdom and see his change in our life. Things would be different among us. So let's respond. Sarah is going to come out. The team is going to lead us in communion in a minute. But before we do that, let's respond. And again, we do this a lot here now. Get in a posture of response. Canadian middle-class culture needs to go out the window right about now. If you need to kneel, if you need to stand, if you need to cover your face, if you need to open your arms, this is important how we choose to respond. And so let's pray some different prayers. So number one, if you are a person 
who is not a Christian. You have never met God personally. You've never feared God in any of those ways. Pray this prayer with me. God, I've been on the run a long time, and I'm done. I want to admit right now that I'm not in charge, and I'm turning. So forgive me for all the stuff I've done against you, myself, and others, all the sin. And I repent. I mean, I'm coming to you, God. I want to fear you. I want to be a person of wisdom. And I'm coming to your son, Jesus, and saying, if that's what you did for me, then I'm in. So pray the simple prayer. Jesus of Nazareth, I believe you are God. I believe you lived a life I'll never be able to live. You died in my place, and you've conquered all the stuff I've done. And I'm now asking you to forgive me and move into my life. Save me and be my Lord. And change me from death to life. I want to worship at only one high point now. I want to meet the living God at the highest point. I want to eat with you, God. I want to have the meal you've prepared for me. I embrace you now, whatever that means. Amen. To another group that have been acting like you're divorced from God, and you have been running from him, and you have been playing with the other side, in secret or in public, you know. Just say this, Jesus, I'm so sorry. I really am sorry. I'm sorry that I've, not, that I've just gone the other way. Forgive me. I need power now to say no to evil and yes to you. And I want the ring back on my finger. I want the robe. I want the forgiveness. I want the life change. And I'm saying, sometimes I don't even believe you can do this because the stuff I've done so bad, but I'm, I'm trusting you now. Come do a new work in my life. I want to be renewed and revived. And Lord, help me to actually rebuild your name with friends and family. For the rest of us, pray this prayer, please. God, we renew our vow to you to love wisdom and to love you alone. Help us to be people that fear God and love others. And God, for many of us who have lived now a detached, non-experiential faith, we are willing and asking you, God, to do whatever you need to do in us so we will be different people, break our boxes, move in and around us. Don't let us box you up like a toothless lion. We know you're not safe. Show, show yourself in your unsafety, but do it because you're good. Has our friend actually led us before the, service, the sermon happened where Isaiah was brought down but then healed and then could worship? That's what we're asking for. God, do whatever you need to do in Crothers Creek Community Church and all churches that are watching online. Do whatever you must do for your glory, for our freedom, so the world can actually see Jesus clearly. We pray this in the name of the Father who called us, the Son who has saved us, the Spirit who indwells us, and all of God's people said, Amen. Thank you for joining us. For more teaching, info, or to give financially, please visit us at our website, crotherscreek.ca.